it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Slammer Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Ready to fight on Film Fight Club. Fighting, fighting, fighting around the world. And freelance writer and critic and fighter, Farat Nehru. Everybody was kung fu fighting. If only uh, it was animated. We just slowly throw words at each other. Like Malcolm and Marie. Oh dear! Uh, oh, word, oh, word uh, salads. Look, we've covered some great films this year. We're going. Well, we're keen for a change of pace. So, yes. <laughs> we're doing Malcolm Marie currently screening on Netflix later in the program. But before that, we're going to cover another film currently screening on Netflix: News of the World with Tom Hanks. But before we do that, we are talking news of the week. And um, the biggest news item of the week, and we're sorry we couldn't cover this last week because we did pre-record, is that cinema capacity has changed. They're now operating 100% capacity, which means a lot of the festivals and screenings, including festivals we'll mention in a moment, have been able to open up new tickets. So you can go see Queer Screen, the Georgia International Film Festival, all these and cinemas back to a semi, back to a regular, more regular form than we were used to this year past. Yeah, it's interesting. I've gone to a few sold out sessions lately that have turned out to be maybe half full. So it's good for those specific screenings, but it's interesting that this is happening at a time when there's a really bad um, lack of content Arguably even worse than Material, last year. Because we talked about this, not content, but yes, gr- granted. Cinema. Yeah, th- there's a lack of films right now. Um, for the In the cinema industry, here's my excuse, before we started calling everything content in the cinema industry, when they talked about bookings, they would use the word content. Fair. Um, anyway. It's, what's remarkable to me that we covered Nomadland earlier in the year. It's great thing we should go see it. And we covered it when it was out in cinemas and now it's out again in cinemas because event and some of the large change that didn't give it a proper run before it decided, oh, this is a great film. It's probably going to do well in the awards well, season. It, it actually, funny, it was actually, already it was advertised it was as a limited two-week release or three-week release when it opened on Boxing Day. I'm not. It's an unprecedented way. Probably there was been a precedent like in the 60s or 70s of like roadshow releases, but it's yeah. a bizarre way to release the film these days. I, I, saw, I saw it on Boxing Day like uh, yeah. as a Boxing Day release and I thought it was getting a proper run because of Chloe Sire and Disney's tie-up. Yeah. Um, but it only got a limited release and I was very surprised. What they're doing in releasing it in March But now, but now is, it's a Golden Globe winner. Chloe yeah. Zhao won the Golden Globe as of this morning. Yeah, very predictably. Yeah. And that is the extent of our coverage of the <laughs> Golden Globes. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> man, oh, God, don't get us started. We, we just there's, don't care. There's some terrible stuff to say about them don't. lately. That, like, I, I know I'm just contradicting you but the, the uh, remember also, finding out that there was no black members of the hollywood yeah. foreign press association rosamund oh pike rosamund pike won best actress in a musical slash comedy for i care a lot they so always stretch the definition of of that the marsh category again especially since the weinstein era yeah. but anyway what were we talking about again? something that's not the golden globes um cinema is yeah, oh, going yeah. to actually see movies right so nomadland um being released in March is the more typical release pattern for this kind of film in Australia. It opens at the end of the year in America, but they hold it back in territories outside of America where it needs to be out before at the end of the year to qualify for Oscars as close as they can to the Oscars as possible so that it can capitalize on the publicity boost. Um, but for whatever reason with Nomadland, they thought they want to do that, you know, have it have some box office legs when it wins all the Oscars, but they also want it out at, at Boxing Day. I'm not sure if it's because they're worried about piracy because everything's going being pirated more often these days with COVID and they know that if they wait a while, they'll be losing a certain percentage of the audience. Yeah, so they have a good film and they want some money. Yeah, maybe yeah. it was also that we, it looked like until only a few days before Christmas, 
that we'd be in an unrestricted period without any major outbreaks of COVID. So they thought it's the holidays. Who knows yeah. what things are going to look we, like in three months? Let's make some money now. Yes, yeah, Australia is probably one of the few markets which is unaffected in terms of releases getting out there and people actually being able to see it, unlike the US. Yeah, which so it wouldn't surprise yeah. me if we continue to see unusual release patterns in Australia and uh, maybe even internationally as we release around outbreaks. Look, un- until and unless No Time to Die happens to release first in Australia, I don't see that to be like, you know. Well, mm. we just, it's not just the release patterns we'll see. We'll see films before a lot of other people. The French Film Festival started yesterday. There's a record number of premieres. There are at least nine world premieres, films that major films that aren't playing in other jurisdictions because they do want to release, they can screen here. And this could happen for the foreseeable future in Australia, New Zealand, a couple of other jurisdictions, but especially Australia and New Zealand where there are mainstream strong film going audiences and they want films to get traction before they either do get released overseas or they go online as they will inevitably do so here, at least for most of the releases. Yeah, Australia, where the bloody hell are you? Right. So, uh, and other slogans. And other slogans. Also happening this week, aside from the Alliance Francais French Film Festival, um, you can go see The Godmother, the Isabel Pair film. Uh, we covered it briefly last week. My review is up on Festivus and Falcon Screen. Queer Screen is going on, ongoing at the event cinemas until Thursday for going until going on a bit of a tour. I hear Supernova is really, really good, by the way, that's currently screening the Mark at the Strong, festival. Sorry, not Mark the Strong, Stanley, Stanley Tucci, Tucci Colin Firth. Yeah, film. I've heard so, great things. So I hope that's getting a release outside. Wow, no, that's a dad cast. That's like it? That's like a dad cast. Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a daddy film. That's that's the aim, I think, from what I've read. That's what they were going for. And Replacing Tom Hanks as the best dad. Stanley Tucci. I'll have, I'll have some words to say but about what, what, that what, in a we, we were talking about Tom Hanks very, very shortly. The Oh, and if you want us to cover the Oscars, yeah, just just let us know. We're, we're in ambivalent. The, Don't well, lie. We're all going to cover it, and you know it. We'll, we'll yeah. cover it, but we'll try to. We'll do a song and dance, and we'll just throw our fits about it. Like, ah, we don't want to cover it. Yeah, we'll, we'll be cover like, it. oh, we're so much better than the Oscars. We just spend 25 minutes talking about it, but it's not like we care. We don't, but we have to. Every, every film lover goes through this this cycle <laughs> of torment. But, but it, it's gotten worse the past few years. I've in some ways, say. it's gotten better. The actual ceremony's gotten worse, but in some ways, the choices have gotten better. The ex- there are exceptions to the rule. It's nice that Parasite won, but yeah. we're giving way too much credence to this. Uh, the Transitions Film Festival is currently screening online. Flickrfest is touring throughout the country. The Castlemaine Documentary Film Festival, Castlemaine's a beautiful city in Victoria for those like you know, who may not have been there is having an online event on Sunday. Sunset Cinema, North Sydney, and Moonlight Cinema are continuing. And now we are talking all things, aside from News of the Week, News of the World is the new Paul Greengrass film with Tom Hanks repairing them, uh, sorry, rematching them following Captain Phillips a few years back. It is about a newspaper man, and by which I mean a man who goes around cities. A newsreader in the original sense of the term. Uh, when people didn't have access to the news, he would go between towns in Northern Texas post-Civil War reading what is going on in D.C. and elsewhere. He finds a young child who was previously taken by the Kiowa people and decides that he is going to see if he can take her back to her family home. Basically because no one else will take her and he wants to do the right thing. It's importantly, uh, she and her family were German settlers. Mm. And uh, while we've talked about the story of the film, the plot and what it's really about is about looking for a home. I would say I enjoyed this without being great. I thought it was good and competent. Yeah. It's it's, it's a Tom Hanks movie, which is like, oh, you know. Oh, it's so milk. It is, it is like very much milk. like upright moral righteousness no. meets 
you know, uh, American no, ideals. Yeah. Frank Capra. Oh, God, yeah. Mr. Hanks goes to Washington. But it's, it's all over the South. But it's riffing off another very famous film, which a lot of Westerns and a lot of directors love to riff, which is, of course, The Searchers. A lot of films go yep. for this. None have ever equaled The Searchers. Um, I think this is actually one of the better examples. Pro- well, it's a good revisionist Western. A lot of the ideas are familiar, but um, they're remixed in an interesting enough way in terms of the different perspectives on the West being offered. For example, Hanks as the newsreader. That's yeah. something that I haven't seen in a Western before. That's a genuinely interesting thing that makes you think about the way people lived in the West differently. Um, he, I, I think throughout he finds interesting perspectives, um, even in just the way it's shot. There's a big uh, flyover shot of Buffalo droving going into a town. And yeah, it's CGI. It has to be. However, I still appreciated it as something that gives you the, an, a sense of what the West was like um, in ways that haven't been done so much. It's, you know, it's the South. I, I should yeah. stop saying the West. It's, it, this is a Southern it, this, West. This, yes, very, very much. It's so. a frontier movie. My issue with the CGI was it was so few and far between that it was distracting when it came about. I sure. agree the Buffalo shot was the best one. There's a really, I think, distracting bad moment when the wheels literally come off. Mm. But aside from that... There's a, some strange digital experimentation throughout, actually, because it's mostly a pretty conventional Ron Howard-esque shot film. A bit, a bit more flair than lot. Ron Howard. And there's a consistent tone that lends itself between each yeah. scene, unlike any Ron Howard film. Almost it, any Ron Howard film, I should say. Yeah, it's a very competently put-together film. Um, more than just the average I'm being vaguely entertained by the story because there's a level of technical competency. But, um, yeah, just the one strange thing about the technical aspects of the film are these kind of, like, digital flickers. Did you notice um, there's moments where, like, digitally the camera's been shaken, like when a wheel uh, rolls too close to the camera or a gun goes off? There's, like, almost like an After Effects type jitter effect put over that like the frame is shaking i think it's a few a pr- times in the movie i think it's a pretty regular thing in film but, but it's just, just so the, obvious it's because so strange in a western it's otherwise a very practically shot film and a very classical film so this very new school digital effect yeah Greengrass isn't used to period pieces i can't think of one he's actually done unless and we can't something like bloody sunday as a period piece you know fair but the, but with period, which it is but, but it's with, totally different but with period pieces the mode of filmmaking is to an extent, if not overtly classical, so as to not draw attention to the fact that there's a, uh, that it is modern times. Mm. You don't want to draw attention to the fact that there is this text surrounding these classical stylings. So they're usually very cleanly shot, and this was, I believe, for the most part, well, and the, the exception I take was, again, to the CGI. Paul Greengrass has moved into a more conventional style from the shaky cam uh, style that he w- has been um, developing since his docudrama stuff, going into the Bourne movies, um, with the last Jason, still his best work, I'd say. Yeah, with the last Bourne film that he did, um, he tried. I think tried to show that he can conventionally the Bourne Ultimatum. Bourne Ultimatum, the best one, yeah. I'd say. I'd argue. Not the Bourne Ultimatum. The um, it's just called Jason Bourne. Oh, sorry. The oh, worst, yeah, the, worst the, the one, one. Right. the one. Yeah. With well, he Jeremy returned. Renner. No, no, no. The one after that with Matt Damon. No, the. It was one five years back. Yeah, and Paul oh, Greengrass returned to direct it in, in it a totally different style. Very it wasn't boring. Great. Okay, yeah, I've completely erased that but, from my memory, I think. But yeah, he's moved into a more conventional style. Um, uh, so in some ways, you know, when I hear Paul Greengrass doing a Western, I hope for some weird um, 
handheld camera digital technique with lots of zooms that really shakes up your impression of what the West looks like, sort of like what Michael Mann did with Public Enemies. I was kind of hoping for like the Paul Greengrass with all the mega zooms like he does in in Bourne, but it wasn't to be. And for what it is, um, it's done well. It's just strange that he, he sticks so conventional, but then, um, but you know, there's, there's a, a few moments when um, he does use some of those born or bloody Sunday type techniques. Like towards the end, there's a moment where suddenly a handheld camera does a zoom on a big emotional moment and it breaks from the classical Western um, still framing throughout. I know what's in your phone. There's a scene in the alley in the hallway and it mm. was fine when he did it because something we're doing with interior shots. So it's an entirely different visual yeah. language and it worked. It didn't bring me out of the film. I, I think what, what works in this film is, is this idea that uh, eventually... Tom Hanks, despite it being a Tom Hanksy film, there's still enough uh, of you know emotional coercion around him to care about the characters themselves. Because a lot of times, I mean, Tom Hanks movies, it is just so obvious that hey, this is a Tom Hanks film. You know what's going to happen. You know what he's standing in for. He's it a standing. He's a standing for upright moral values of the goodness of you know. You know, what America needs to be and what America could have been, the potential of American values, essentially. There is a bit of that here, but still there is potential for conflict, and Hanks's character also has some grey shades. So it was nice to have the slightly complex character than it being a usual Tom Hanks gimmick. This was not like Sully 2.0, which was, you know, the dad movie of the year of that year. I think, th- to that point... This takes place very shortly following the Civil War. Everyone we meet in the film who's an adult is a Civil War veteran who fought for the Confederacy. So obviously, um, historically and in the modern political climate, there are conflict shades. I think this is handled well because that you see varying characters who had different experiences during the war, who had different associations with the South, political and otherwise, and different functions. That's I think one of the things that... Um makes it interesting you know like the the story and the emotional trajectory of the characters in this film is very safe but the historical um details i think are novel and um the perspective it showed on how affected the south was by the by the war and how as you say everyone was a soldier and there's this constant fear um and uncertainty i thought was really interesting and just intrinsic to the plot there are all these folks living in i think as in respects, as a result of the conflict in relatively isolated areas, aren't as catered for by the government. There's obviously a point of tension that is further than some of the major scenes where we see with large crowds. And there's one of the best scenes of the film is when he reads to a crowd who are increasingly belligerent as to what they hear, they think they're being hard done by. And this can be read, I think, fairly and is made in light of the current political climate. It's very much, oh, uh, we're seeing how news readers and reporting in the news can play out how mob mentality can can, um, be a, can take fo- hold fast. I take the view that this could have been very on the nose, but it's just classically handled like a lot of the rest of the film. I think it's pretty on the nose. I think it's better handled than some of the narratives we've been seeing recently, but I think that's just because everyone's gone so goddamn unsubtle in the way that they bend every narrative to be a comment on Trump or Trumpism or America today. Early in this film, I, I think it might have been actually in that that's in the scene you're talking about where there's the belligerent people, but his um, daddy Hank's here to tell everybody that you, you must remember we're all hurting and it's time to stop fighting and we all come together. I had the thought that Tom Hanks is Joe Biden. And then at the, the you know midpoint of the film, he meets an Uncle Sam figure who is all about driving people of other races out and here, read my fake news. 
And at that point, what Virat was talking about, about like, you know what you expect from Hanks is coming right out here. Like he's such a, if you'll allow me to put, keep pushing this metaphor, Biden-like figure in how he's, he's like safe. We go to close-ups of his face when people are racist and he looks sad, but he never really stands up or says anything. Um, I, I disagree to some extent. I think this is a relatively realistic narrative that could and very likely did happen around that time. I do have issues with some of the pacing in that um, in order to bring a, flux, a, a crux to so much of the story, they have all these major events, especially one uh, violent event in this Deadwood-esque environment. But I think it only feels on the nose because the film is being released at a point where these sorts of discussions and these sorts of sort of drama is so relevant. Therefore, I didn't have a problem with how that sequence was staged, especially as the way the crowd got agitated and worked up felt very natural, as we've seen in other contexts, whether currently or in films set in other environments in other times. Bear in mind, though, that this film was you know, um, released at the end of the year, delayed a bit by COVID and made by Paul Greengrass, who I think is a very political filmmaker. I feel like a lot of this subtext is actually intentional. I, don't, I think it's intentional, but I don't think it's heavy handed. It could have been worse. I actually agree with Glenn here because I feel this is not something like Mank, right? Which With Mank, the political commentary kind of felt very forced. In fact, they were trying too hard to make that point. If you compare that to here, I felt the natural context of what this uh, film is set within lends itself to that kind of commentary. So I feel with this film, especially, you can't have those discussions. And I felt those uh, parallels are incidental. The fact that Hanks is somebody who is trying to fight for the truth. He's not trying to do his Will McAvoy uh, newsroom Aaron Sorkin-esque shtick which can be very heavy-handed. So in that sense, this was very much reserved. He did have genuine uh, uh, plot points and genuine concerns that he was addressing. So in that sense, it felt like this was very much real and off the time and off the place and off the people. But it and literally also, has him opposing fake news. But I also, yeah. we, we also, and it's okay, we, we see someone, but his function, his job is to say, the newspapers pay me to go out and do this. I report it as it's written. Um, his function story made sense to me. As for the Civil War commentary, we see someone who, I think there's a great nuance to this. We see someone who is sad about the war, but not necessarily apologetic for major aspects of it. And that's how a lot of folks would have felt at the time. He is not an entirely sympathetic figure. And I liked that. I think the real sure. sympathy with Hanks comes when we see the narrative, the main narrative uh, with the young girl um, who he can't communicate with directly. Uh, we won't ruin how the story pans out, but I really liked the ending in this regard. And the, they had a good dynamic. They had a good rapport between them, even though... And I love seeing films where there is limited language or dialogue, especially between main characters. It's one of the more redeeming aspects of the bits of The Shape of Water that were handled well. Here, for the whole stretches, they can't directly communicate. And um, it just therefore, they relied on the scenery and their more physical interactions to tell the story, and they told it well. Yeah, it is very well shot in terms of the landscapes. I, I did find it, find it refreshing that Hanks was playing a not morally infallible figure after a long, long time. I mean, yes, there's still... There's the circle, there's a few films. Yeah, there, there's, you know, but still, it, it felt like after he did Mr. Rogers and Sully, he was just destined to play mm. America's greatest dad. I have to, yeah. And, no, and I, this I, one, there's still, he's still not overly sympathetic. I have to disagree he, with you guys. Okay, I think right. he's, he's not a saint. He has flaws, but I think the film is very tailored it, it, towards it's, it's side, showing his yeah, nobility. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like, in terms of what I was saying about the political stuff earlier, when you guys were saying, um, you know, it, it, it's not forced, it emerges 
um, organically from the narrative and, and Hank's his role in it isn't isn't forced. Uh-huh. I I agree, but still um, feel it like seeing all these events that can be read as commentary and all these themes that can be read as commentary all crammed together. It it doesn't even sort of need to be heavy handed for the. I think just in this so context, the incidental stuff kind of adds up. It just becomes impossible. I don't know. I don't know if it's a problem with me, but it just becomes impossible not to read. Um, maybe it's um, the politics into it. Maybe it's this is partly a, a, a an effect of what Glenn was talking about the pacing. This is too cramped. I, th- I think. Look, there were bits of the film that were overly obvious and direct but that's more the narrative reveals than political reveals and i think that lends itself to feeling that this film is is too blatant i disagree i think that the only issue with pacing i think the scene one of the more interesting scenes granted for the only thing that could have been excised was again this violent scene uh where the con- we see the con- consequences of hank's new reasoning come to um a, f- a fulcrum this it was just a little bit too much coincidence that all this could happen. It could have happened over a longer film. Bad writing. It was a very, it's, it's just a piece of bad writing. The, the film, I, I think this is the one point where the dynamics of the storytelling and the story and the themes they wanted to tell overtook an otherwise interesting narrative drama. And, and that scene did frustrate me. Otherwise, I think it was handled well. And that's the one scene where I think um, the organicness of the political messaging breaks apart because it's the scene that um, it, it rushes the events and creates an unrealistic thing so that a Trump figure can be overthrown in a revolution. It, it, that's the scene that paints the let's everybody come together, um, Biden-esque, yeah, uh, Tom it, Hanks as political savior kind of thing that I've very, been talking very about. Independent Most of the day. time it's more subtle, but yeah. in, that, in that moment it, it just got too absurd for me. And I mean, I mean that's, it's, there's a broader discussion that we sh- probably, you know, in a future episode might have around the, the cult of Tom Hanks mm. and, and whether he can escape his own sort of cult in terms of what he's come to represent for America. We tried you know, the Charlie Wilson's war and he failed. You know, he hosted <laughs> yeah. Joe Biden's inauguration concert. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost it's impossible so to brand. separate that kind of, you know, uh, the the blue wave uh, love child, which is Tom Hanks, with everything else that's going on. Just a th- a one last thought from me about this film. When we're talking about this kind of nobility of Hanks I th- and and me comparing it to Biden and stuff, I think the problem there is that the movie gives you exactly what you might expect when you start to read it along those lines. It's very simple in terms of you know which people are good, you know which people are bad, the people who are bad have the values that are in opposition to inner-city liberals at the time. Um, You know what's going to happen, you know how it's going to address themes of of like racial divide and the way that the natives were masked. It's very what you expect and in, in terms of portraying a noble, safe, liberal messaging narrative. I agree, but still at the same time, I appreciated that I went throughout the whole film and didn't feel like, oh, not this again. He's a pro. I was being lectured. And, and again, this whole film could have just been scenes of him reading the news and commentary, and it wasn't. I mean, we're emphasizing Those scenes are great. that story, but they, they were great. They had dramatic tension, and they didn't go over long. It's not just him reading extracts of, here's what um, Ulysses S. Grant said this week. Look, unlike the director of the next film we're going to talk about, Paul Greengrass, as a director and co-writer, is a pro. He's a solid storyteller. Yeah. He knows not not to make it too preachy, keep it focused on the characters. Um, the action, which we haven't really touched on so yeah. much, is so well yeah. put together. We, had, we actually, yeah. I mean, separate to all this, we haven't talked about the best scene in the film, which is a shootout involving Hanks and three other persons. It's, with the exception of one big CGI moment, which actually didn't bother me, it just all depends 
on the cleverness of the script. It's someone trying to outsmart someone practically. Yeah. There's no big showy moments. Um, it wouldn't have cost a lot to film. But the spatial great. dynamics are very well communicated, which is interesting because that used to be what everyone criticized Greengrass about with the Bourne films. In this, you know exactly where people are in opposition to each other, and that's used to really ratchet up tension. It's super classical, and I think Greengrass has tried to address his critics. But... Um, I feel there's enough novelty within a tried and tested template here to keep your interest. That's how I feel. And that's, I think, there's something to offer. You should watch it. It's enjoyable. I, I recommend it. I don't think anyone's mind will be blown. But think about how much more depth um, for a very comparable recent film Coen Brothers' remake of True Grit had in comparison to this. I feel, you know, like I think that that comparison shows how limited this is in terms of the emotional tones and the predictability and the safeness of it. Yeah, I mean, the film's drawback is that it's a Tom Hanks film. That's it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I mean. No, he, he picked an appropriate act of a narrative he wanted to tell. That's, that's, that's my coverage of News of the World. I have nothing else to say about it. The last thing I have to say is that I love Tom Hanks's coat. The texture on that thing. Oh, it's so gorgeous. <laughs> I just want that coat and pretend to be a, be a cowboy. I can imagine Hanks just riding through the West, just, um, oh, I, I, don't worry, Paul, I've got one. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. He had by far the best piece of clothing in the movie, and, and I was shocked no one commented on it. So that is News of the World. It is now streaming really. on Netflix. And the next film we're talking about, film I use in loose terms, that's a little unfair. Only a little unfair for the reasons I'll mention in the moment is Malcolm and Marie. Was it shot on film? It looks like it is. Very grainy. It looks like. I think so. On that note, um, a couple of months ago, Netflix downgraded the algorithm they use and things with grain just look awful now. And it's interesting that they've done that at the point where they've put out News of the World, a pretty digital fuzzy looking movie, and Malcolm and Marie, a really, really chunky grainy movie, both of which get just overtaken by pixelated blobs now. So fix that, net Netflix. But still, Malcolm and Marie is... A bad movie, despite it being fuzzy and grainy. Oh yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. It, it could not matter that, if this could, was beautifully could not shot. Be saved. Um, so you're listening to Film Fight Club on Tuesday with Glenn Falcon, Sankar Sevens of Rat Nehru. We're talking about Malcolm Marie, the new Sam Levinson film. It is starring John David Washington and Zendaya. It is a duologue between the characters played by the pair. Uh, the evening following a major film premiere by the John David Washington character, who is a director and filmmaker. Importantly, this is the first every major Hollywood film conceived, shot, released altogether in the past year. A lot of Hollywood films have been released or currently shooting, but they were uh, conceived or at least partially shot what? prior to... What, are pandemic. you telling me this was rushed? No way. I, that, that script seemed like it was it was so deep and so well-developed and he had so much to say, man. How did they get a lot to say? Wow. He did have a lot. Uh, that, that part was fair. He did have a lot he to did, say. Yeah, but it's not necessarily, like, organized or important or nuanced. No. It's just, you know, a lot to say. It's so like, what's right. this film about? Okay, importantly, <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. We, we, we have to... A question <laughs> we will continue to ruminate on well yeah. into the podcast extended conversation. Yes. yes. Um, now, importantly, this is a film of a genre that actually hasn't been popular in about 90 years. Back in the days of Bernard Shaw, there were all these Man vs. Superman plays where the function wasn't traditional uh, drama or narrative. It was to elucidate on themes or topics. And these, mm. the, all of these plays were directly in response to cultural or critical conversation. These fell out of popularity, A, because it doesn't translate as well to film, B, because it's just not that entertaining and we want more traditional narrative fare. Uh, this is a complete reversion to something I can't even think of really being done in what has been billed as a traditional dramatic film for many, many decades. And it shows why this genre 
fell by the wayside. I, I think My Dinner with Andre would be the last film that they did yeah. really well. And the, but that was brilliant that, conversation film. Yeah, but and there was two people throughout the whole film handled and, for by a real director. <laughs> yeah, true, and it's a good film. So also, I like this one. A lot of the, what happens in the film, uh, it's well known. It's heavily implied, more than heavily implied, that is in response to a review written by a critic in the LA Times, which is behind paywall. So I can't come because I actually haven't read it as is referenced in the film. Washington Post, I think, um, or it's been published in a bunch of papers, so I was able to read it. It's so pretentious and outrageous that someone would make a whole film response to a piece of critical commentary. I mean, well, we, sure, power to the critic well, and power to him, but. Um, at, at least make it naturally engaging. We've naturally, um, for anyone who's seen this film and knows what kind of a hectoring lecture it is, um, we've jumped right over the explanation of what the film is about to talking about what the characters talk about in the film, which reflects the way that the dynamics of the drama get overwhelmed by Sam Levinson's soapbox rants. But ostensibly, the film is about a filmmaker whose uh, first film just premiered tonight, and his partner, who is an a formerly or or maybe currently, um, but it's up in the air, an actress um, and a recovering addict, who feels like her life story has been pilfered by self entitled uh, jerk Malcolm. Self entitled jerk is who, a reasonable description yeah, for all. Who, because yeah, and this is all spurred because he failed to thank her in his award speech. That's it. I mean, it's yeah. that petty. A, a, a premier speech. A, it's, well, it's not petty. And it is Mr. a... Mr. Thank you. No, no, no. Oh, it's, it's a fair it's criticism. It's a very fair... As it's something he should, have, should just immediately on. apologize for. And, say, you know, and this is a jerk. And this is an interesting premise. So we're going to be continuing talking... And, and this is a, premise, a good premise, which isn't, isn't fulfilled. We're going to continue talking about Malcolm Marie on the podcast. Please subscribe. It's on iTunes, Spotify, Google, if that's still a thing. I don't know. Just wherever good podcasts are found. 2SER host it. Film Fight Club. Go listen. Stay, Yay. stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin. There's been Glenn Fountain, Chris Evans, and Rotten Neighborhood. Check out GIF and Queer Screen and all the festivals that are happening right now. Have a wonderful night and enjoy movies. Good night. Hopefully not Malcolm and Marie. And we are continuing on all things Malcolm Marie. So this is... As many as we can talk about before we become too exasperated to continue at least. This is so evidently just the direct... Sam Levinson using Washington and Zendaya's character to an extent as a mouthpiece to vent on his views on cultural criticism and America and filmmaking. If he... There's interesting stuff in here, but the form is wrong. We, in fairness, you talk about these things a lot, but we are not narrative drama. We're critics. We talk about cultural commentary. I like to write essays or reviews. Yeah. People look for that sort of commentary and that sort of engagement there. This is not the right forum. This is not the right form. That's on point. When we were watching it, my girlfriend said quite early into the film, why didn't he just write an essay? And I think... <laughs> I would have read it. Yeah. I think he's just... Um, he's trying to riff on a history of these intellectual films. Like I can, I think of Jean-Luc Godard because contempt um, has been pilfered from a bit here with the camera tracking left and, and, you know, back and forth across the walls of the apartment as an, in an extended scene of an actress and a filmmaker having an argument Um, that that's the, you know, and Godard's way of um, dropping in political rants or characters talking about issues outside of the narrative has been absorbed in here. But Goddard, um, someone who people would never accuse of not being self-absorbed, uh, self-absorbed, <laughs> managed to give he the character self-absorbed. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. would absorb yeah. and absorb. He himself. managed to give his characters a really interesting conflict. 
Um, and he kept the fight to like 30 minutes and surrounded it with some interesting stuff that isn't about movies so that a person who isn't within the Hollywood bubble could relate to anything that's going on in this film. That's the thing about why this, another reason why this should have been an essay. Yeah. Who is this movie for? We can follow this stuff about IndieWire and critics said this and I don't like the trend of identity and politics. Barry and Barry Jenkins is saying Barry this Jen and that. Yeah, because we use film Twitter and we have read the blogs. It's and inside we exist the Beltway. In, yeah. But it's the most inside baseball film I've seen in a long but time. But like that is such, uh, uh, in the movie, there's the level of self-awareness that Zendaya says it's all stupid. This is, you're just selling stuff. You're a hoe. But he still made the movie about it. Like, yeah, yeah, of course it's, you know, what she says is like. It's true. Is true, but it's not interesting enough to make a movie where it's like, oh, it's okay that I spent all this time to um, wage my personal battles this because the character says, oh, you, you're being self-absorbed. It's mean, almost like, sorry, I, I'm almost done ranting. Yeah. It's almost like even more self-absorbed to, um, you know, to make a movie like, here, look at how self-absorbed I am. It's like that, um. Uh, uh, our time, the Carlos Regatas film. Did you see that? Yes. Where yeah. the filmmaker plays a filmmaker who shows off what a jerk he is through the film that he made. Yeah. And like that, that's, you're just exposing us to, to your narcissism on an even deeper level. And I mean, uh, you might argue and say that uh, there are a lot of films that are meta like that. I mean, Iranian cinema has been doing meta work for a long time where directors play versions of themselves. Panahi is basically paying himself in a lot of his films. But at the same time, he's using that form to say something which is not purely about his inside world. I think this film, I would have been taken, been okay Agreed. with it if this was just even a play, right? This oh, could have been, as a play, it dude, could have worked as could a have better worked form. As, as a, a two-act play. And, and importantly, not just the form and the sort of discussions, but it's one setting with two people. Pretty much. I could have seen it. Um, in that environment. It's interesting you compared it to Panahi because when I was thinking about how frustratingly stage-bound, um, I thought, oh, we'll cut them some slack because of COVID. Then I thought, no, hang on. Panahi made some amazing, like, exactly. closed curtain yep. is incredibly cinematic and incredibly visual um, from, a, you know, being shot also just restricted to shooting within a house. In this movie, it's funny watching the ways that they try and stretch to make it not seem so much like a play. So it always feels on inauthentic. So you've got John David Washington doing this hugely over-the-top dynamic dance, which doesn't seem like someone coming home drunk at the end of a night. I, I would rather watch the drunken shuffle, but immediately, you know, it things don't feel quite right or real or well enough performed. Um, but, you know, you've got the montages of, like, people smoking or people in the bath. The most ridiculous uh, one is when, for some reason, Zendaya goes to pee outside so that we can have some atmospheric shots of different places outside of the, the house. It's desperate because not once do any of these montages contribute to the actual meat of the film, which is always in the conversations, and not once do they ever achieve any kind of real visual, sensual poetry that might have made this feel less stage-bound. So why wasn't it just a play? It's why something, but it's and to the same token, it's why something Pygmalion uh, worked better than again the early references of Man and Superman. On the, I'd like to return to the meta aspects in a moment, but on the craft itself, there are all these moments where they want to break it up and they have to just continue on. They can't have an act break as you would as accepted in the form of theatre. So you have these incredibly loud music cues where there's overwhelming jazz or people are washing up and there's great attention drawn to the sound design and where it otherwise isn't drawn attention to. But it's, it's never done well enough. It's never, it's never done well at all. It's very poorly handled, and it just... Like, 
Another example we covered last year was the two popes, where they have similar sequences like this. But here it's just so much more glaring and blaring. I, I'll be honest and say the sound design actually gave me a headache. Like huh. I, the whole I actually, movie gives you a headache. Hey? It was just horrible. It was so painful. On the meta aspects, I'm okay with films being meta, even to the extent that it's overdone and overblown now. I'm sick and tired. Usually, you see it in the Marvel films, you see it in other films, and I know this guy's going to hate being compared to Marvel, but it's a fair call, where just because you are self-referential or outwardly self-aware, if the emphasis of your film is on the aspects you are attempting to negate in your filmmaking, that doesn't make it okay. It's the same argument with exploitation film. Even if you have a film being like, oh yes, um, but we're really making a commentary on how these sorts of groups are perceived here or in film, if your emphasis is on the exploitative elements, then you're not doing your or your film any favors. I'm thinking of a scene when uh, John David Washington is ranting about the way that the male gaze is perceived, and then there's the, it's very on the nose, and Daya's been writhing around in her underwear on the ground for a while, um, and she says, uh, or he says, uh, you know, hey, if I were to film you right now, would that be male gaze because I'm a male filmmaker, or would that be just what you're wearing um, on a Friday night? It's so smug. To put that, you know, that kind of fourth wall break of like, haha, am I, am I capturing, you know, I can do whatever I want. Um, and on, on top, it, it kind of reminded me of the, re, the similarly bad, actually much worse moment at the beginning of um, fondly remembered Oscar winner Crash, when um, the, uh, the black and Mexican guy, I think, are, are saying, I think it was, oh. are talking and saying yeah. like, oh, you know, they're, do they, um, they're racist because they think we're going to go and, and break into the car and then they immediately do. It's this kind of like, haha, you know, this smug writer, director, like, haha, I can do what I want, you know, meta fourth wall break. And it's just so arrogant. And we have to be clear in just how discomfort it is. He thinks because he acknowledges this, he can get away with it. And in fairness, there are some scenes where David John Edward Washington's shirtless intention is drawn to that. But comparatively, he's fully clothed for most of the film. Zendaya is either these lingering shots on her very revealing dress, or there's the, or half the film, more than half the film, she's in an underwear and a singlet. And and not just the close-up shots of her, but there's the one extended repeated shot where she's lying down and the camera is at her knees and just looking up at her navel and her shirt. And it's just so compared for a film that is attempting to draw attention to how exploited the elements in cinema can um, be furthered it is leaning into that rather than seeking to negate them. Hashtag literal navel gazing. But the film is <laughs> no, no, not so much navel gazing has been done since uh, Song to Song. Rooney Mara's navel gazing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> God. And you can do it fine. Like um, to use a film, to, to quote a film that a lot of people hate, The Greatest Showman, Zendaya was in similarly gear or limited revealing clothing throughout, but it was handled more tastefully. The thing is that this but film is not just and you know trying to highlight the ways that cinema can be ex exploitative. This film is a provocation. Um, I think that to a large extent, Levinson agrees with what Malcolm is saying, which is that we should like we should allow artists to do whatever we they want to an extent, so that we can retain the the mystery of art. Um, and I think he's he's trying to prove that in the way that he films Zendaya. And I'll give him this credit. All right, I'll, I'll meet the provocation with provocation. <laughs> the fact that he is as a director is clearly in love with Zendaya pays dividends. The highlights of this film are some of the ways that he shoots Zendaya. 
she's a beautiful woman. He 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 comes alive in terms of the visual visual imagination, in terms of the the shots, the way he frames her. Um, the, there's this close up of her her head from upside down as she eventually starts to cry, which is gorgeous. I feel like the the mom, only moments I feel a really engaged artist here are when the guy is just saying "fuck it." I love Zendaya and throwing that all up on screen. You and he's what? arguing, I, he's entitled to do that. You know what? She has the best lines of the film. One of the only lo- few lines that are good belong to her. The only line I laughed at was a comment, was the line she had about talking about uh, white filmmakers, critics. And she said the SPF 40 brigade, brigade. I thought that was pretty funny. It was the one moment where I, a comedy where I felt, oh, there's a bit of levity here. It's interesting you brought up the comparison to The Greatest Showman because the review that this film was responding to in the LA Times was originally written about The Greatest Showman. No, it wasn't. It was about Assassination Nation. Really? Yes, Sam Wilson's previous yeah. film, yeah. Absolutely. Oh. And for the record, having read that review, it is pretty savage, but it's so, so... Like, I don't think in general, unless there's genuine personal um, proclamations being made, that artists should respond to critics. And I can see why he might have thought this was a bit personal, but for me it didn't cross the threshold of bad taste to which it deserves any kind of response from the filmmaker, let alone a film. Yeah, there are forums for this. Certainly I've had filmmakers reach out to me following a review or criticism to engage. uh, And you can talk generally about criticism, but I think this is the wrong forum. Case in point, I haven't read the review, but what I understand, it goes into quite some detail as the John David Washington character as a mouthpiece does in this, is the role that race has to reckon with when a reviewer is talking about it's actually not so much about race as it is about gender for the record, but he, I think he's used it as a broad catch-all umbrella for identity politics, which he wants to have his rant about in this film. So he's shifted the, the conversation to being more about race. So the rant he has, one of the rants he has, I'm referring to the director here through the John David Washington character, is the idea that many critics will change their coverage of a film which is has racial elements depending on the racial background of the filmmaker or filmmakers. Um, the arguments he makes in this film is that filmmakers will give a, a quote-unquote pass to filmmakers of colour um, when making a film about ra- ra- racial issues and they will be more hypercritical of a white or Caucasian filmmaker when they do this. I think but this- not just that, though. Um, he also makes the point that um, that black filmmakers are trapped into being black filmmakers, that um, the identity politics ends up being limiting in prescribing, like everything gets read in terms of being black, like or the film's described as jazzy, you get compared to Spike Lee and it's the jazz. You know, you're the next Barry Jenkins, which, you know, fair point. Yeah. The thing is, yeah. I agree with a lot of these points, but, you know, do I want to see characters rant about them in a film? Yeah, look, I... Th- agree with a lot of the, or at least I find that, I, I agree with a lot of the stuff he raises and I think the discussion more is well, as well having. I do agree that reading a lot of critics on a lot of different matters do temper criticism, um, openly so, for with reference to the different filmmakers' background. I think this is an interesting discussion to have. Not only do I think this is the wrong form for the reasons said, but I think bringing it out in this way and and being so glaring and so blatant and just so pretentious and and um, self-righteous in so many regards actually does a disservice to this debate. I do not. I I would hate if the starting point for proper discussion about this came out of this film when it could have come out of and many better essays which do exist on the subject. And it's not enough of an excuse for arrogantly lecturing the audience through 
um, character, you know, I, I think a lot of the people watching this film will be going in to see a romantic, um, well, a relationship drama between these two characters and then think, what the hell have I gotten into? And it suddenly becomes about all this stuff about filmmaking that the average person doesn't care about at all. But um, in talking about how there's a different forum for these ideas and the idea of, you know, maybe they would be better expressed in an essay, there's something interesting about the choice to make this a film about black characters here. Because let's not forget that Sam Levinson is the son of Barry Levinson, right? Um, he, to speak in the parlance of the, the social justice conversations that he clearly hates and has a, a bone to pick with, he comes from a position of privilege, right? Um, if we focus on identity, we focus on things that he probably has a chip on his shoulder about. So... In a sense, I think I think if people were to read a, an essay by him on these subjects, most people's response would be, you know, oh, okay, so uh, white rich son of white rich which film director thinks identity politics are stupid. Oh, how predictable! I don't care. But if you cast black people <laughs> saying these things and which shift is a the, point they reference in the film yeah, directly, and and have black people I- express these ideas. Um, then suddenly the attention is taken away from you know. So I'm just saying that like I don't I don't think he's, he's not an impartial person. He he frankly he's not the person that should be making the, the just because of the position he comes from. And I don't think trying to shift this into being about black people so as to take the attention off himself is enough of a justification. It kind of reminds me of the Times Online when some right wing person pretends to be gay or black or something. And, and be like, I agree with all these conservative positions, da 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 da, and then it gets exposed. Well, that that was like, essentially Milo Yiannopoulos uh, <laughs> trying to be controversial using his sexuality. But and, yeah. but I mean I mean the times when people I think it's a very different context. People put the the thoughts that they ha- they pretend put the thoughts that they have into the voice of a minority to create the the illusion of like, well, hey, well the minorities are on my side, and they may well be. It may well be that as John David Washington and Zendaya have said, they have agency here, um, they agree with it or whatever. But it still feels strange to me that he's tried to couch what's, what are clearly his own personal thoughts through the veil of race as if he does have a chip on his shoulder about identity and authenticity and is trying to distract us. Okay, I think you've uh, pretty much hit the nail on the head in terms of my queasiness with the entire mm. film and the genesis of the film in, in the first place. I mean, I'm all okay with, you know, regardless of whether or not you come from a place of privilege, there are many people who have recognized that and started their discussion from that recognition and, you know, putting that as a context and saying, I acknowledge my privilege and still I have something to say and that's all fine. But I think what Sam Levinson is doing here is kind of sneaky and almost Mm. disingenuous where he feels that if he casts black actors as his lead, then he can basically make them his mouthpiece because they're still reading from a script. Yes, they have agency, but they're not ad-libbing their own yeah. thoughts. They're still yeah. reading a script, yeah, 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 yeah. essentially. Look, I don't mind who he casts or what issues he address. I just want to address what I think is the real insidiousness of this film where he wants people to react against this and then wants he and his friends to be outraged and laugh at the people who object. That is the function of this film. It is an inside-the-belt way 
um, we want to have this conversation. But you know what? I don't think a lot of people in Hollywood would be too interested in this just because it's not that interesting a film either in terms of its philosophy or how it's shot. On that, why is it shot in black and white? It is just pretentious. Oh, yeah. There's no it's function just, and doesn't look better. There you is a function. shoot it's with a, those shades and it doesn't look engaging it's the like sa- it otherwise could have. Like many other filmmakers handle it better. It's the same as the timeout montages that I was talking about earlier. It's just another desperate attempt to make it look more cinematic because everyone knows black and white is gorgeous and cinematic automatically. Um, but on what we were talking about, about this thing about identity politics and such, such there was a, a moment of strange disconnect that occurred to me when um, John David Washington is talking about um, how he did the hard yards and he, he really um, worked to make it to where he is as a filmmaker. And while I was hearing this, because the film invites you to read it as maybe Sam Levinson doesn't realize this and he thinks he's disguised his viewpoint more than he actually has. But I, I feel like, yeah, intentionally or not, it invites you to read Malcolm as a stand in for Sam Levinson. Um, and yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah so when he does, yeah. So when he started to talk about all the, the hard work he did, I thought, Hmm, I wonder if Sam had to do that much or if, if the doors were right open to him. And then I thought, hang on, Denzel's son is saying this. And then I thought, there is no self-awareness here at all. Like a, a, a script written by the son of Barry Levinson, given to a character played by the son of Denzel Washington, both of whom have, have pretty much just emerged on the scene, being given big opportunities relatively early in their career, like Sam Levinson's um, uh, show running Euphoria or um, John David Washington in Tenet. But there's no self-awareness here at all. More than that, and for a duologue, you have to have really talented actors. I don't think John David Washington and Zaya are bad. They're also not very good. And you need at least one really talented actor to ground this and make it interesting to watch. And so many of this is just reaction such. And you know what? They don't have much to impart because they're not that talented. They're not that talented yet with the nuance that the film so necessarily needs them to bring across. It needed to be invested with a huge amount of soul in the performances so that we wouldn't be so distracted that the drama keeps getting abandoned to go on these rants. Like you stop caring about the relationship dynamic. And I think the best part of the film is the very end when it's coming to a resolution because the rants have mostly gone away at this point and there's some actual conversation. And at that point, it's almost like we're watching a real movie. It almost starts to develop some kind of gravitas in the last five minutes. Not much, but like in comparison to um, the rest of the film, it's like, man, imagine if we just, if he hadn't tried to lecture us. Imagine if he just made an okay two-handed drama. I actually found the ending really weak. It's the, the I agree. Actually, symbolism coming in. Actually, for the, the re- for the record, um, I'm now going to flip on what I just said. No, I stand by what I, I said that it um, there's glimpses of what this could have been if it wasn't a real actual story there. But the a thought that the ending gave me is how incredibly stagey this is. The, the final mon- uh, monologue from Zendaya is the kind of big finish that would play really well on a stage. But on a screen where all of this, the screaming's been magnified by the power of cinema for the last two, you know, near, like 90 minutes or whatever the hell, um, it doesn't feel like a big enough finish. It feels really understated for such a, for a cramped two-hander, flamboyant, over-the-top, abrasive film. And we haven't really spoken about how goddamn just hard to watch this is. I had a, like, I, I, cooking helps. I cooked a lot while watching this in segments. Uh, yeah, I had to pause the film a few times because I just couldn't. We don't recommend this generally, but it just shows how hard it is to watch this in one sitting. This had a screening at the at the Ritz and like, you know, a, a limited season. And man, how hard would it have been to watch? Because the problem here is comparing it to the Goddard film Contempt, 
there's a lot of interesting and pretty material leading up to the, the argument, which is sort of gradually develops in that film, where you get to know who the characters are and why they have differences and why they might be fighting. This movie, pretty much um, after this dance scene, immediately is like, hey, fuck face. Like, you don't warm to a person who's yelling and angry. It's just like basic psychology. But if they were yelling about something maybe interesting, you, we might be drawn in anyway. Like, you, you might get that shock, but go, okay, what's this they're talking about? But they, they just keep yelling about this Hollywood, um, what, what I think about critics reporting, uh, you know, opportunities, box office stuff. And I feel like the film is not giving you the opportunity to warm to these characters or performances. Like even if they were stronger with this kind of material, it's just a misbegotten project because we're not let in to care about them. It's the worst I've seen this year. Oh, I, I, I don't know if I'd go that far. Oh, actually, we've watched some, nah, we've mostly watched decent, to like okay-ish movies. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easily the worst. It's... Yeah, it's, but, uh, it's unbearable. But how how bad is it that like this is what we get to choose from these days when it comes to like I want to watch a movie for adults. I want to watch maybe like something that where real issues will be discussed. I think in this the world movie. is a adult movie. With oh, real it definitely issues is. Discussed. Yeah, it definitely watch is. That. But um, man, American cinema is sick. You know, like that that this is the like the serious character drama. You know, like News of the World, sure, I agree, but it's more of like an adult adventure movie like Master and Commander or something. This is... I mean, we do have Nomadland also coming out. Yeah, just so, see that. I mean, Nomadland's good. But Nomadland's great. I mean, that's that's a, a serious adult drama. Yeah, that's true. So that is Malcolm and Marie. But they're few and far between these days, we have to admit, right? Sad. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, Sad. but, you know, it, it just makes it easier to wield out the trash. That's so how I feel. Yeah, Taking out the trash weekly on Two CR podcasts. So we yeah we can't recommend this film, not even for a hate watch. Just avoid. Just Get in the trash, Malcolm. Yeah, Marie. Go, yeah, go, go, go read it, the better like Shaw plays from a long time back yeah. that did handle this. Sure, or, or watch Goddard's Contempt, or watch Before Midnight, which features an amazing extended couple argument scene as well, yes. which is uh, which you know draws you in and is hard to watch and emotional in all the ways that this film is not. Actually, yeah. Before Midnight is probably the most underrated of all the before films. I think it doesn't. People get are as coming much around. Credence, people uh, are coming to around. I think recently we're talking to people. A lot of people have uh, spoken about it. how much they love it. Yeah. yeah, I felt it was underrated. At least, the, at least the circles I speak with, they seem to love it. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people have a strong emotional connection to Before Sunset, and it'll take a while for people to, yeah. um, you know, love Before Midnight as much, just because it's a harder watch. But that's the power of a real story and, and you know, characters we care about having an argument instead of this what-the-hell-is-it project. Yeah. Even something oh, as uh, intellectually breezy as My Dinner with Andre has more honesty than this one. Rod stole the thunder out of my next joke. The ending is such a... The reason the ending is such an anticlimax is because the problem that what Malcolm is doing... Malcolm is stuck in the middle. It's immediately apparent at the beginning of the film and it takes ages for the resolution to come. And there's so many interludes in between that, you know, it's like a foregone conclusion that he would get to the point he's at, and at the end of the film. all comes out through bad, bad exposition. Bad writing. Yeah. And it's, the thing it's about- It's poorly written, it's poorly shot, it's poorly composed, it's poorly acted. One, it's la- poorly yeah, on that, one last thing on that note, John David Washington, I always criticize him. He's not good, but- He's um, better in this than the other things he's yes, done. Yes, he's better in this than in any other things he's done. But as we were saying earlier, still not good enough for the role because, you know, the times when he has to really express his anger, the l- limits of his range are really apparent. I think this guy should just be doing comedy. 
the, frankly, the way that he expresses anger in this movie is kind of funny and like in a different context, I could see killing it. So, uh, you know, try to stop trying to be like your dad, I guess, go into comedy. So that is my dinner with uh, Glenn, Chris and Virat and our coverage of Malcolm and Marie. It is streaming now on Netflix. I, yep, go see something else. It's harsh, but fair. Uh, we'll be back next week talking Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, we won't, if we don't like the film, we'll be prepared to say so and why. Have a good night. But hopefully, you know, the filmmakers won't come after us with a, with a no, feature-length rant. No, it, it's, it's mostly good. I'm prepared, sure. prepared to say that. But we'll get into more detail um, next week. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Not Enjoy good movies. And good night. Bye-bye. Bye. bye. bye.